is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi and welcome back to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca and today I'm joined by Peter. Hello. By Jess. Hiya. And by Serafina. Hello. On today's show we will be talking about the Chilean national plebiscite, the government's stance on free school meals, the SAGE report on the effects of COVID and related restrictions on Gen Z, the student response to mental health support during COVID, and Harry Styles' investment in a new Manchester arena. For the past year, we have seen outbreaks of civil protests take place throughout Chile, which started as retaliation against rising subway fares in Santiago, but the movement grew to address increased costs of living and the prevalence of elitism, privatization, and inequality in the country. On last week's show, we talked about global, global movements and protests, and Chile has experienced one such movement, with the media referring to it as an estallido social, a social outbreak, and a Chilean spring. The movement was pioneered by students and has seen waves of rioting and looting. A catalyzing moment for the movement was when over a million people protested specifically against President Piñera, calling for his resignation. He responded to the unrest by changing eight ministries of his cabinet and dismissing his interior minister. Last year, the National Congress agreed to a national referendum on whether or not to rewrite the Constitution, and it was postponed because of COVID, but was finally voted on last week, on the 25th of October. The current Constitution is still from Pinochet's dictatorship, which upheld neoliberal principles, prescribing minimal state intervention, which has allowed private sectors to dominate public services and make them inaccessible. This Constitution is what has enabled socioeconomic inequalities throughout Chile, which were the crux of the protests. The referendum saw a landslide victory for reformers, with a 78% vote in favour of drafting a new constitution, with voters saying they want the new constitution to include a written record of Chileans' basic rights and a focus on accessible and decent education, healthcare and housing. So, what do people think about this year-long fight for reform? I think it kind of plays into a lot of the protests and things that we've seen that we were talking about last week and um, there's definitely a mood kind of not a revolutionary mood but uh, a mood for more change um than we've previously seen but i don't think this is anything new in south america is it from what i know which is not much i'm not gonna lie um but about south american politics um there's been quite a lot of history of kind of popular revolt and popular change um especially in the face of dictators so this kind of seems to fit the pattern I think it's definitely the step in the right direction for Chile in terms of overruling controversial legislation dating back to the Pinochet years. Um, I th but what I know of the constitutional kind of um, controversy that's been going on in Chile, it's been going on for decades and uh, I think when it was passed uh, during the Pinochet rule, it was used to facilitate his power and kind of give authority to his rule in Chile. So kind of overturning that is, um, it's redoing past wrongs that Chilean people have seen um, over the, over the decades of um, military military dictatorship and then kind of the transition to, towards democracy so obviously it's kind of developing that transition into democracy and uh, like Serafina said it is part of that global uh, move for protest which we've been seeing and which we've been reporting on. It's also important to mention what's going on in Nigeria with the uh, anti-SARS protests, another youth-led protest against police brutality which has also been used to kind of redress um, whole structural wrongs within the political system. So yeah, I would agree that there definitely is kind of this international stimulus for change and people are demanding change. And I don't think that these are separate, isolated instances. 
they're kind of like with the power of social media, people around the world are seeing how people are coming out in the streets and protesting, protesting for civil liberties, uh, trying to right wrongs that governments are committing. So I think it is quite an unprecedented time this year in terms of what's going on. Because it's a reoccurring event and series of these protests and with social media like it only takes one prominent figure to post about something an issue and the whole world seems to respond and I think that's really inspiring again we've all been locked indoors and people are still have a voice outside. We've had unexpected uh, referendum outcomes before such as with Brexit and when Colombia voted to reject a peace deal between the government and guerrillas. How do you all feel about referendums in general? Loaded question. <laughs> Personally, I'm all for referendums in terms of direct democracy over representative democracy. So obviously, as we know, within our system, um, our democratic system revolves around representative democracy where we elect uh, MPs to basically do our bidding in the House of Commons. Referendums is kind of this opportunity for citizens to go out en masse and make their voices heard. And I think that referendum, like, obviously there was a big division in this country in terms of the referendum vote regarding Brexit. But I do agree ultimately with the idea that referendums need to be upheld as representing the voice of the people. And if you think about it from that perspective of exercising direct democracy, then they are an important element of that. I think I, I do agree, but also with the fact that we do have representative democracy, I think it's dangerous to have um, referendums because it's not constitutional technically. So there's no kind of precedent of... But we don't have a constitution. Well, yeah, but I mean, there's no kind of precedent of whether the government should definitely take the result or not, because there have been referendums in the past that they've just completely ignored. So it's kind of, it just so happens that they went with the result of the Brexit referendum, but in the past it's not been something, you know, there have been referendums well, just kind of brushed under the carpet. Well, the, the, like I, the I do agree. They are, well, the one. thing is that referendums can be wishy-washy because it depends how the people, that's normally the politicians who put the referendum in place, whether they state that this referendum will directly yeah. uh, impose on political decisions or whether it's just kind of like a touchstone to see what, what mm. the mass opinion is. Obviously, referendums as they operate in Switzerland with the cantons, it's a complete exercise of direct democracy where people basically vote on most issues that politicians, mm. like the government, presents. So I do think that there is merit in terms of that more democratic, uh, uh, direct democratic approach to um, to political organisation. Yeah, it definitely just needs to be kind of stated before the, the actual vote happens, what whether the government are going to honour the decision or not. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you've got a dictator like you have in certain South American countries, whether they're actually going to honour what they've said or not is another story i guess mm. um so yeah I, I feel like i don't have a yes or no answer as to whether i like referendums or not i think it's very situation specific for me i think it's often a moral gray area because mm. obviously governments want to prove their commitment to democracy by putting it up to the people but then a lot of times you see these misinformation campaigns as was the case with brexit so mm -hmm. Ultimately, there's other powers that come into play. And also, not everyone votes in referendums, so are you really putting it to the people if only half of the yeah. population turns up to vote? Yeah, I think there's a lot of variables that obviously vary from situation to situation. The one thing that I would also say about Chile is that we're seeing a peaceful transition here and a peaceful protest. Uh, like re Relatively peaceful if we compare it to the tragic events that happened in Nigeria last week. Mm. During Chile's protests towards the end of last year, there were reports of um, human rights violations conducted against protesters by security forces um, and torture, including eye mutilation, sexual abuse and sexual assault. And it's reported that around 30 people died, which is a tragedy. Um, but the fact that this has culminated in a referendum is a step in the right direction.
yeah, there's definitely positives to take away from the referendum decision and the fact that the actual referendum vote kind of operated to a certain smooth extent of peaceful decision and a peaceful protest, then it's a, it's a good takeaway point in terms of our uh, theme on protests at the moment. So our next story is about the free school meals palaver that's been going on this week. So there's been a government vote in the House of Commons to extend the free school meals scheme that the government had put in place over the Easter holidays and summer holidays because of the pandemic. Uh, But that's actually been rejected by all Conservative MPs. So the motion lost by 322 votes to 261 um, and all of the against votes were by Conservative members of Parliament. Um, So there's been a massive backlash in the media and in the public this week um, because just of the fact that there's now going to be millions of children going hungry this week. Um, So analysis by the Food Foundation has estimated that an extra 900,000 children in England have been going hungry um, or looking for free school meals since the start of the pandemic and that's on top of the 1.3 million children who were claiming free school meals in 2019 anyway. Um, so about 15% of the population of, of school-aged children were claiming and then on top of that is an extra 900,000 uh, children going hungry because of this pandemic. Um, and it's sort of fallen to Marcus Rashford, who, you know, last week we were calling the new leader of the opposition, um, to to sort this out because the government have voted against it. So he has been doing absolutely incredible work. He started a petition to get the government to reconsider their position again Um, and at the time of recording that's got 950,000 signatures Um, so you should all go and sign that if if that's something you are interested in to try and get it up to a million that'd be great Um, but he's also been tweeting a lot so he has asked local businesses to kind of put together packed lunches or meals that hungry children can take if they can't afford food uh, this week and he's been literally tweeting out all the locations of businesses that are agreeing to help so in Manchester we've got a couple of examples I've seen Mabel's Chippy on Oldham Road almost famous on Great Northern Street and also Man United are actually delivering 500 sorry 5,000 free school meals um, to their partner schools which is really really great one thing I do find absolutely frustrating is the fact that the government are kind of pretending that they're supporting Marcus Rashford even though they've literally just in a huge majority rejected his the the amendment to the bill that he's put forward in in government this week uh, so something made me really angry was matt hancock saying i saw marcus rashford said what we need is collaboration people working together i totally agree and yet he as a member of the executive as a member of like one of the leaders of this party their party line was to reject this bill um, and all on social media, you know, they're saying, oh, we, Marcus Rashford's doing a great job, you know, what he's doing is, is really charitable, it's great. Um, even though that's their job, they should be providing these school meals for the children that are can't afford them at the moment. Marcus Rashford is a 22-year-old footballer, and in my opinion, that shouldn't the job shouldn't fall to him. Um, so we have a statement from the council, the Manchester City Council, um, it's just their kind of press statement. So they've said that approximately 31% of pupils aged 16 and under in Manchester are eligible for free school meals. Um, and they are extending their council scheme to include children from these families who are legally classed as having no recourse to public funds. Um, so that's on top of the, the children who are eligible for free school meals anyway, which is really great. Um, and each family is going to receive a payment of £15 per child for the week. Um, and actually something that I think is really good is that they 
are doing this money, um, it can be paid directly into a bank account or as a food voucher. So for me that's kind of a more humane way of doing it because a lot of the free school meals that were given out over the summer were just kind of bags of random ingredients that kind of, in theory, were worth £15. Um, but if you looked at them it was just kind of bags of rice and maybe two potatoes which doesn't substitute a proper meal. Um, so I think that's really good the way they're doing it. And again, that kind of links to what we were saying about the substantial meals from last week, about what the government are classing as a substantial meal and then not providing for everyone else. Um, but yeah, this is quite a emotional issue, really. Um, that, you know, people's lives are at stake, children's lives are at stake. Um, so yeah, any thoughts? Yeah, definitely. As somebody who was eligible for school, free school meals, like when I was at secondary school and things, this is a issue that's made me so angry recently. Um, and I think the government are just... It, I'm constantly angered every time I see a new article about it and as we're saying Marcus Rashford it isn't his job to do it but I think it does open it up to the wider issue of charitable work and you know we you know people, children have been going home for a while we have food banks that are not run by government you know they're people donating food uh, you know just a tin of beans and that um, but it's a wider issue now and I think because of the coronavirus and how you know people lost their jobs people are not working people don't have as much you know, money to spend on food, especially now children are not in the schools. It's such a huge issue that should just have been done and easy and quick. And I think Rashford is doing something amazing. And on top of what you were saying about where you can go and get these school meals, I think as students, we should be supporting those places as because they've obviously really struggled in the hospitality industry. Um, and if we can go and buy a coffee from them because they're providing school meals, I think that is kind of our duty to go and help them. I just to add on to the list, I know that Fress, um, v Revs and Milk and Honey are all helping out too. Milk and Honey is literally on Oxford Road, yeah, it, our campus, good. so if anyone's up there. We definitely encourage people to go, um, kind of, if you, if you want to go out for lunch or get a coffee, to go to these places to mm -hmm. kind of help participate in the scheme. Mm -hmm. Also, on, if you go on Rashford's Twitter, they've, uh, he's got a link uh, for Fair Share which is kind of the main charitable organisation where you can make little contributions or ho however much you want to contribute towards kind of donating to the delivery and mm. kind of purchasing of free school meals. So anyone who kind of wants to get involved with that, uh, Fuse and Focus endorses those, <laughs> those um, activities. Yeah, I, I, do, <laughs> I do feel a little bit odd about this though. I, I've been reading some articles and stuff about this this week that... Um, it, again, as we were saying, it's not really our. It's great that we can do this, but it's, it shouldn't be our responsibility. Um, and also, it, we need to kind of make sure that we're extending this kind of feeling towards free school meals in the election booth as well. But we do eventually get an election um, because it's all well and good trying to feed these children at the moment. But if we then vote for a government that that literally refuses to feed hungry children in the future, then it kind of doesn't sit right with me. This is a wider issue as well because we've had homelessness during coronavirus and the government, you know, said they had people in hotels while they were shut, but then hotels opened again and did anyone know where people went and slept? They were back on the streets again and it's again, it's an issue that children going hungry is horrendous and it can't become the next wider issue where we've got so many charities helping children not go hungry. That should be sorted immediately and then other wider issues. It's just... I'm so angry at how it's still a prevalent issue right now and how it's just been emphasised in coronavirus. It's just disgusting, really. I'd also like to encourage people to sign petitions. I know Serafina mentioned one of them, and there's three prominent ones that I'd like to showcase. Um, there's one on the Parliament uh, government website called End Child Food Poverty, No Child Should Be Going Hungry, and that's garnered almost a million um, signatures. 
There's one on change.org telling Boris Johnson to not take away lunches for 1.4 million kids on free school meals. And there's one on 38 degrees um, calling for no public money for MPs meals because hypocritically they do have food and drink subsidized. Yeah, that, that again makes me really angry. These these people are literally voting themselves pay rises um, and then cutting the cost of their food and also then ignoring the fact that some people can't afford to feed themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just it, it does seem incredibly hypocritical, um, and it does play into this wider hypocrisy that, uh, personally, I feel this government is kind of made a, a mainstay of their policy. Mm. I think another thing was the vouchers that they gave out at the start of lockdown were only for specific shops, and again, these shops, I think, were obviously like mainstream supermarkets, but not really the places that people with not enough money to support the family would be going to, and I'm it not- was... Well, it's it's what it's what it's what you've been saying. A lot of the things are quick fixes and they're exactly. facades. Mm. They're they're style over substance in the sense that um, we, we've seen it in statements as well. So Boris Johnson salutes Marcus Rashford on the work he's doing. Nadim Zahawi, another Conservative MP uh, who literally voted against what Marcus Rashford is doing, said he's doing an incredible job. So how can one like say to someone oh you're doing an amazing job while behind like like it's like giving someone a hand behind behind your behind your back you just like put the middle finger at them basically you've got man hancock saying he's inspired about it so it is it is ridiculous and it's and it shows what boris johnson's cabinet have been doing for a while like they like to they like to put facades when they can't when they can't fix the problem or if they're not even bothered to fix the problem and Rashford's completely running rings around Boris and his cabinet. And the fact that it's down to a 22-year-old footballer to set up policy guidelines and show how social work and food distribution around the UK can be organised is an absolute joke. Yeah. I mean, you can provide these school meals for one week, but then what happens when this week is over and all those businesses can no longer afford yeah. to provide these meals? You've still got those millions of children going hungry. Um and it is the government's job to kind of sort that out. Um, and I'm just worried over over Christmas. If they, I think they've said something about extending the bill to include Christmas, but it does worry me that, you know, we've got this. It's going to get a lot colder. The pandemic's going to get a lot worse. There's going to be more people getting ill, more people losing their jobs, um, and to then have added people going hungry on top of that really, really, really worries me. Because um, as you said, it is a pattern that we've seen the government following over the past few months. Take Dominic Cummings, for example, you know, he literally wrote the, the policy that he then went and broke mm. when he drove up to Durham Castle. Well, he is um, chief spin doctor. His whole yeah. <laughs> his whole job is about the facade of the Yeah, Yeah, um, but yeah, it's very worrying. Especially, like, the UK is one of the richest countries in Europe. Yeah, and the fact yeah. that 15% of our population, even even in non-pandemic times, 15% of our mm. child population are it's, on free school yeah. meals. It's not like we don't have the resources. No. If they were distributed in the right way, if they were managed in the right way, we have the facilities, we have the resources mm. to make problems like this, basically, if not non-existent, very minimal. Mm. And the fact that they're rising in the UK, and it's not just child poverty, it's general poverty and deprivation yeah. around the country and in specific regions like when we spoke about regionalism and regional differences last week that's a huge problem homelessness like we mentioned they're all on the rise and the fact that it's going on in the country which is one of the wealthiest countries in europe is an absolute joke yeah. and the fact what we've been seeing in the media recently where as a result of the covid pandemic people at the top levels of like the wealthiest people have increased their wealth they've they've gained more whereas those obviously at the bottom as as is the trend, have been losing out and have been squashed, basically. Yeah, so kind of uh, jumping off of that, the universal credit scheme, which the Conservatives kind of 
promised was going to make up for the the sort of decreased welfare state that has kind of been created over the past 10 years. Um, they have, in theory, increased the budget for that, but universal credit, again, in my opinion, is fundamentally flawed in itself because mm-hmm. it takes time and resources that people don't have to be applied for and then it takes weeks to come in and during that time you have literally no government support so if you lose your job and you've got five kids to support and you're waiting for universal credit to come in there's nothing you can do you're relying on food banks and obviously they're limited as well um so it, it is flawed and they've actually only allocated 63 million pounds to local councils um for these free school meals which i did a little bit of kind of very crude maths so i i, uh, I googled and i found that there's 343 councils in England and then I divided that by 63 million and I came out with 5.44 million um, so if anyone's better at maths or I've got the stats wrong do I do apologize but that works out to about five and a half million pounds per council um, obviously it's uh, allocated in different proportions because of the different sizes um, but five million per council to feed millions of children just isn't very much money um, and that has to you know that kind of gets lost in the bureaucracy of of working out the paperwork for all of this and doesn't actually end up paying directly for the meals um so basically just the whole way that the government approaches the the issue of of poverty in this country is fundamentally flawed and yeah. it all just gets lost in the bureaucracy and the actual people that it impacts are just kind of ignored really also the impact of like actually having to go and ask for this food from these cafes like yeah i can imagine it would be quite an embarrassing scenario to end up walking into a place and saying can i have this yeah. free school meal and whether people will like, even take advantage of this system if they're not part of it you know there's there's not a lot of obviously it's great that people are helping but as is with everything there are going to be some people that take advantage of a situation when they don't need it um and I think that kind of stigma around asking for something and it shouldn't you shouldn't have to ask basically mm. there should be no stigma there should be no embarrassment it should when, be received when, when people see though like where, where the stigma comes from and it's understandable if you felt like um, not I guess embarrassed is the wrong word but you felt undignified by doing it mm. if you're reading these things that I've been seeing on Twitter of people arguing against yeah, um, the Rashford, the whole Rashford yeah. situation, condemning what Rashford's doing, saying they should stick to football, saying that if families, uh, it's family's uh, own fault if they can't provide for their kids, and arguments are oh, you shouldn't have as many kids then, or you should better spend your money. It's absolutely ridiculous, but you can see if people that are going through these hardships and say if it's like you've got a single parent who's got two kids to feed, and they're they're seeing these things on Facebook posts, on Twitter posts. How is that going to make them feel? It is going to make you feel meek when you're walking into this place. And you're, you're mm-hmm. completely right, Just Like, people shouldn't feel that way. But we've kind of fostered an environment in this country where it is undignified to ask for help or say that things aren't, like, working out for you right now. And I feel like we need, like, a complete overhaul of sentiment regarding those issues. Yeah. It worries me that a lot of these Facebook posts that you see, these kind of more well-off people breaking down how you can feed a family mm-hmm. with five pounds and you know saying oh if you if you buy like this amount of pasta and you divide yeah. it by this amount entirely unrealistic <laughs> i'm just thinking that people can live completely off rice and pasta yeah. as well. also, like, like, literally... like eat rice and pasta you might get yeah. scurvy but that's, is, that's your problem it is very much like reminiscent of let them eat cake where yes, you see people, people are so out of touch yeah. and mm. just aren't showing an ounce of humanity and i yeah. think it's really a shame especially during a pandemic where there should be more of a sense of solidarity yeah and people are just, you know, just letting waiting. their selfish colours fly. <laughs>
waiting for Jacob Rees-Mogg to come out and just be like, let them eat pasta. Mm. I think his, his <laughs> sister's a politician and she did tweet something similar oh, to no that. God. So it's like... <laughs> They're yeah, just parodies of themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen people, politicians tweet about the, the price of like cheap food items and mm. then just being very patronising about yeah. it. Mm. Some people literally don't have hobs to cook pasta yeah. on. Some people, you know, it, that five pound is a choice between petrol for yeah. the week, uh, something yeah, they get to the job. It's things we take for granted, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah, it is. They, these people just have absolutely no idea because, as I've said, they're earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and are having their meals subsidised for them in Parliament. Yeah, yeah it um, just shows how like a lot of our elites are completely out of touch yeah. with the harsh realities that are going on. And I mm. saw Rashford kind of replying to that when he was being attacked by a lot of Conservative politicians, basically telling him to stay out of politics. And he made a good point in terms of the fact that I might not have the education to debate you as intellectually as I'd want to but I do have the real life experience of this and I've seen this with my own eyes and that's the thing like I feel maybe even taking some of these so like you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg's sister who's making jokes about it or like trying to tell people how she thinks they should like be conducting their diet plans literally taking these people like to the homes that are being affected by it and opening their eyes to the situation maybe like that would actually put a degree of empathy in these people like parliamentary wife swap <laughs> I also think it's a very Without flawed. Very good idea. I think it's a very flawed argument when people tell uh, footballers and other people who don't directly work in politics that they don't have a say in these things because well the people who, the people who do work in politics aren't are proving themselves to be worthy. Yeah, they aren't doing anything about it. Like on kind of the theme of what we started our podcast in terms of this idea of referendums, direct democracy versus representative democracy. Um, in terms of on this theme of direct democracy, of actually exercising your your rights, your your opinions within the within the public sphere, this is what Rashford's doing very well, and kind of trying yeah. to take that away from him and diminishing yeah. like diminish what he's doing. It's just it's worrying completely... though that he's only able to do that because he's such a high profile person. Mm. So like, that's the way that you know uh, all of us feel, but because we're only lowly university students, we don't you know, we couldn't do the same thing. But, but what um, we can do, like we said, is uh, what Rebecca is, and Jess yeah, gave is support. endorse and support mm -hmm. the um, the places that are offering free school meals. So like, go spend our money there. Um, go on Rashford's Twitter account to um, go on the fair share link yep. to pay um, if you can. Uh, sign a petition. petition, yeah. Sign <laughs> yeah. That, everyone, all of us can do that as students. Because yeah. obviously like, money's tight for us, mm -hmm. but a petition you can sign, it'll take two minutes out literally, of day. literally it's like it's a 30 seconds yeah. and the petition's all, like 50,000 away from a million so the 40,000 people at Manchester University who are all obviously listening obviously to listening, this yeah. um, all going <laughs> that's, that's only 10,000 away exercise from exercise your direct democracy yeah. that's what we're telling you um, so yeah your direct democratic rights so our next story is um, Sage Report warns of a lost generation we will be taking a deeper look at the Sage Report warning of the impact of reckless Covid policies on the young Gen Z are facing educational, mental health, social and unemployment crises as a result of the impact of COVID-19. Yet SAGE experts have warned that number 10's handling of the pandemic may worsen the already deeply felt issues of an entire generation. The Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, colloquially known as SAGE, is a British government advisory body that counsels central government in emergencies. The group is led by two names you might have heard slipped in the media or seen in Downing Street briefings over the past COVID-filled months. Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Advisor, and Sir Patrick Valance, the Chief Scientific Advisor to the Government of the United Kingdom. The group blends specialists from scientific backgrounds in academia and industry, along with experts from within government. 
The 2020 COVID-19 pandemic has seen an expanded role for and greater attention paid to the SAGE group. This has led to a certain degree of media sensationalism of labelling the group as secretive, yet this group of experts and largely academics is far from a secretive conspiracy theory organisation. Publishing regular reports on the impact of COVID, advising a government which insists it is led by science, and often being dejected with Boris and his cabinet for not following its advice, have been the chief engagements of SAGE as of late. Generation Z, also known as Gen Z or Centennials, uh, refers to the generation that was born between 1996 and 2010. Following the Millennials, the oldest members of the generation have been finishing university by 2020 or entering upon their career paths. The generation has been defined as being raised on the internet and social media being dubbed as the digital natives. Whilst being seen as a group which lives more slowly than their predecessors in terms of lower rates of teenage pregnancies, less pronounced consumption of drugs and alcohol, and a more concerned approach to academic performance and job prospects, the generation has been deeply affected by international crises of the past two decades, with the 2008 economic fallout and now COVID-19 pandemic severely halting the prospects and progress of an entire generation. Recently, SAGE has published a report which experts warned that the impact of COVID policies in the UK could affect the young in many negative ways, leaving them scarred for life, quote-unquote. SAGE experts have accused the government of failing to protect Gen Z from harm caused by pandemic response. Statements from the report, such as the risk of Gen Z becoming a lost generation and being catastrophically hit by collateral damage brought about by crisis, have left a damning review of, of government handling. Those who fall within the generation have largely avoided the direct health impact of the coronavirus. But this has not meant that quite often that the generation has been left open to being a scapegoat for the media and politicians who look to deflect government failures in handling COVID on seeing the nation's young as inconsiderate super spreaders. Yet the expert advice which members of SAGE have offered to the government in combating collateral damage for certain generations and the health risks for others has often fallen on deaf ears. Documents released by SAGE show the Prime Minister and his Cabinet have recently dismissed calls for an immediate circuit breaker lockdown, which was meant to have been introduced in September. A virus control policy which was designed to curb the spread of COVID-19. The latest development of the PM's overalling SAGE advice tarnishes his government's comments on upholding their famous line of following the science. Recently, Cabinet Minister Robert Jenrick insisted the government was still being led by the science, whilst in an interview with the BBC defending the decision to ignore SAGE's lockdown advice. The official SAGE document, which was released after Boris Johnson's announcement of a tier-free COVID alert system, revealed the committee warned that the nation was facing a very large epidemic with catastrophic consequences unless ministers took direct action. People who will fall within the Gen Z age group have been quote-unquote brushed aside, states the report, across the ages within the group all have been negatively impacted. School closures and confusion over examinations has caused much distress to members of the group. We saw this in August fiascos of GCSE and A-level results. For younger children, a period of destitution is being foretold in which families will struggle to feed and provide for the children as a result of economic impact of the pandemic. Affecting the older members of Gen Z, youth unemployment is on the course to more than triple to its highest level since the early 1980s and is predicted to hit the high of 17% at the end of the year. Those who have struggled getting jobs are left destitute and confused about future career prospects and where the money will come from. For many university students, the transition to online learning and lockdown restrictions has led to much anxiety regarding academic performance and social life engagement with peers. 
There have been huge mental ramifications recorded throughout UK universities of students struggling to cope with the new norm. With Gen Z shuddering uh, from a huge amount of mental and physical health issues, their prospects of the future in terms of being integrated into a well-functioning economy are looking bleak. For a government which seems to be looking at economic interests above individual lives, a short-sightedness in policy is once again coming to light. So what do we think about the report and the impact that we have seen in terms of examples of COVID restrictions and general COVID issues affecting Gen Z? It's very scary. Um, it, <laughs> what you're saying about the levels of unemployment being the same as the 1980s, it kind of, it brings to mind all the unemployment stuff that kind of arose from Thatcher's rule and um, and there's, uh, going back to sort of South America as we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of youth unemployment there and it's kind of messed up generations worth of, of people's lives. Um, I think obviously we all knew it was going to be bad because of the fact that there is a global pandemic going on, but it just seems to me that we've kind of been left behind you know people were focusing so much on you know it's what we've, again what we've been saying this the, earlier on the government are kind of focusing on short-term solutions to try and put plasters over the cracks and then aren't addressing the cracks themselves um and it just looks like we're all gonna struggle a lot because of this a lot more than certainly our parents did anyway yeah i think the people that have been in third year especially the university when they graduated it was just a bit of a like an, oh what's next like there were no graduate schemes really open people were having to do placements internships from home if they could even get on those um, and I do really feel for those students who have just been let out of university and let out of education and cannot find a clear path to follow exactly and they don't, maybe they've got a degree in something not vocational something just that they love doing and there's not a permanent job out there that they can go and get and I think when the government is saying we want to focus on apprenticeships and internships they're in specific industries which doesn't cater to all students with all different passions, especially in the arts industry and creative roles. And I think that's really disappointing that it's not for everybody, it's for those who can make the most money. Mm. I think, not to politicise it, but it's also unfortunate that the pandemic is coinciding with Brexit yeah. because that's already limiting options for young graduates in terms of finding employment in the EU, for example. And for example, I'm an EU citizen living in the UK, so it's going to be hard for me to stay here after uni and try and find a way to pay home fees or get loans. And then it just makes it that much harder um, in this job market, especially after things calm down in this pandemic. Mm. I think as well, you know, not just university students, I think Peter, you were saying the um, amount of mental health issues that are going on in our generation is huge and I can only imagine how awful it is in mm. GCC and A-level students. Um, and you're totally saying, being exasperated Yeah, by... because of this focus that our generation has on education, I think we all, I, I don't know, you know, we've just all suddenly become like a generation of SWATs or something, but... Um, what is what you're saying about mm. there's less kind of drug use and teenage pregnancies and more people are putting more importance on school and so then to have that kind of the whole big kind of stepping stone I guess of GCSEs and A-levels taken away from you and uh, your future put into uh, a state of just just loads and loads of unknowns you know there's absolutely no solidarity there um, it's just really scary I think uh, to think that this pandemic you know even if the actual case numbers go down the effects of it are going to be kind of spiraling out of control for years and years and years um, and it might be down to us you know when our generation's finally actually in government we probably will still be figuring out the problems that have arisen now i think there was that idea of wasting your time during the pandemic so you couldn't go out and do these things that you're meant to be doing like you've had places work experience 
and a lot of jobs now is all about have you got like this experience got mm. have you got this have you got that no I, no I don't because I was locked inside for six months and I think for those who managed to try and do things online like that was amazing because it yeah. was such a horrible time that we shouldn't have been expected to be gaining experience and you know points in the job sphere yeah I think it was um, hard enough to find online experience or uh, work placement opportunities but then even just doing that alongside mental health issues yeah. and the fact that everything was online made it so much harder um, and we're, this has just derailed our futures in a sense because everything's been put on hold we're in our early 20s um, and we're gonna feel the effects from this for years to come. Mm. I mean, education and like employment aside as well, in terms of like the mental health and mental well-being argument, like in terms of our social lives, like people like our age and also when we're talking about like the GCSE students and the A-level students, like finishing those kind of stepping stones as you were talking, Sarah, you know, meant to be a time of celebration yeah, when definitely. you're meant to go out with your friends, yeah. celebrate, like enjoy your time, like people in Gen Z who are in their early 20s like we're meant to be in the prime of our lives yeah in terms of like the world's basically like as the saying goes like it's your oyster yeah. you can do anything you want like we're meant to be enjoying ourselves as like as much as we are also meant to be striving to kind of like succeed in education and mm. kind of like look at like getting up that wheel of employment and that mean, ladder for those who took gap years before they came to uni i mean yeah, what, what was the gap year yeah. I, mean, I know i had a friend who went to australia i think in like last I think it was last October and she was came back, you know, kind of, she went to be there for a whole year, I think she was there for like four months. Mm. Um, and yeah, she's just been there at home and well, I think she got a job at Tesco, which is fine, but for an employment's perspective, she wanted to be in Australia doing some amazing things and then she was stuck at home. Like going into uni then, you've not, you've, you, again, and then you're stuck online. Where's, where have you had your fun? You wanted to go and have some experience, some knowledge, some fun, exactly as we were saying before, going back into education. And it's just been halted and then again, you're then stuck in a freshers room when you know in halls doing what you can't go to clubs you can't do anything you're just and, um, it is, isolated it is, it is really it is really unfortunate at the same time like i guess looking at the bigger picture we also have to count our blessings i in think terms of the regardless fact yeah of course i think we're all very privileged yeah and yeah. no one's denying that um, I think regardless of what you we choose still to, feel sorry for we can, yeah, we I mean, can. The, the posts on ULM love, if anyone's seen, there's been some really scary ones to people saying, you know, I've, I've got this much work. I literally physically cannot fit it in my week. I don't, I can't do all of it. I've, I've not got any opportunity to socialize. I've not been able to see my family at Christmas, like all of these awful things. Um, yes, you know, we are all privileged, but I think there are people suffering still, especially in our student population. Um, and there's just, you know, there's nothing really anyone can do because we're, as I said, in a global pandemic. What were you going to say, Rebecca? I was going to say, I mean, regardless of what you choose to pursue, like age 18, 19, whether you take up an apprenticeship, whether you decide to go to uni, whether you decide to travel for a bit, such a fundamental time for everyone our age, um, and for that to kind of be put, you know, as like, on as pause. It's like a learning curve for your it's life, a, it's where a you're going to curve. experience so many different things. Yeah, and it's a good time to try and find out what you want to do with your life, and... It's, now it's almost, all those prospects are yeah. kind of limited. I do, I do think, like, if you think about it from that way, it's almost as if, like, some people's, like, th that life and that development process that you're speaking of is kind of put on hold. Mm. So, like, are we going to see, like, a later maturation of people? Or, like, are we going to be living it up in our 30s? 
So like we're thirty, you're in your twenties. Wish, wish. I think, I think, I think, I probably will have to, to be honest. <laughs> a gap to make up for a lost time. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. a gap decade instead of a gap year. Yeah, exactly. maybe, maybe like still going hard till you're forty. Yeah. Um, but no, the so Gen Z, Gen Z, whatever you want to call it, um, is seven to twenty-four according to the Sage report. Um, so you know that's seven-year-olds as well who literally have absolutely no clue what's going on, and yet they are going to be entering into the similarly kind of destitute job markets that we are in god knows how many mm. years um it, it it's just <laughs> it's really scary it's really scary for the stigma of those who didn't get to do their exams this year as they'll be known as the the people that didn't actually do the exams yeah, so, like yeah. freeloaders exactly yeah. so are they going to be seen completely differently as you know people like us who have done our gcs a levels um yeah i think that's scary that that could possibly give them disadvantages in the job industry mm. just because they didn't do the exams and they could be seen as like oh yeah well, you just got given the grade you got given, you know, you didn't do any work. Yeah, even though, of course, there were massive extenuating circumstances, yeah. I have even heard friends of mine criticise that or kind of feel a bit resentful towards people who didn't have to sit their exams. And it's mm. just... At the same time, they miss, missed out on so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them wanted to, you know, they were prepared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then there was also that whole fiasco of the kind of lower income schools and you know poorer areas getting their results put down yeah. which again just kind of highlights the classism that's going on in this mm. country which obviously is just like an added kick in the teeth on top of the yeah. the awful things that were going on anyway i think as like like as like a concluding remark for that and what we've discussed in terms of the report that I said and our discussion after, across the board from that age of, was it seven? Seven to 24, From seven yeah. to 24, it's, it's bleak. It's bleak yes. for every, <laughs> every year of that category. So as we were saying about students being really affected by coronavirus, we think it's important to also look at how we've been responding to it, especially being confined to our rooms with online learning. And obviously, if people are in halls as freshers, how the isolation that um, must be feeling being stuck and not being able to make friends as we did, especially we had freshers, which, as we can all agree, was probably one of the best weeks of uni. Um, so, yeah, we've been looking at mental health and how it's been really affecting students right now. And it is becoming a wider issue in halls, especially because it is isolating and they're being controlled in ways that you want to go and socialise. But obviously you can't and they've been the, the threats have been being kicked off your cause big fines and i think they can all like pile on to make you just feel like so i'll just sit in my room then i'll just not see anybody and i think that's the most dangerous thing a student could do right now and not reach out when they need the support um so yeah we've been looking at maybe more positive aspects of what's come out of this mental health struggle and one student called alan white has started a photography campaign looking at mental health and trying to normalize it and show that it's not just black and white it's not just mental health there's so many layers and realms of this issue and so many people feel it in so many different ways that it needs to be shown and so he's doing a photography campaign and he wants to get a thousand students involved taking photos of different expressions to again show people happy people sad and just kind of explain and you know put into words and on a, in pictures how students have been dealing with this pandemic um, so yeah, he spoke to us and this is what he had to say about student mental health and his project. My name's Alan White. Uh, I started a recent campaign called Mental Health Isn't Always Black and White um, recently in Manchester and over 150 students have got involved in a week. Um, a lot of them have messaged and said stuff like they've actually lost friends recently and since going into lockdown, not seeing their family and not seeing their friends, 
it's really put effects on their mental health. Uh, also, so many other communities and people have reached out as well. A lot of societies have said they'll get involved. And it just shows right now with mental health, it is really bad, not just for students, but for everyone. Um, recently, we had the death in Uni of Manchester and not much has really been said apart from it wasn't corona related but with the comments the dad released on social media saying unis need to do more support it just shows right now that many unis aren't doing what they should be um also like if you look at some unis yesterday posted on twitter some students that security and their accommodation have actually sexually assaulted some of their students um when you look at stuff like that, if a uni can't employ people to actually look after the students, then how are unis actually going to be able to look after their mental health? I just want this campaign to stop people looking at like race, gender and sexuality and look at someone and see emotion. I want someone who's got mental health problems to look at this picture and see someone happy and see someone sad and be like, oh, I feel like that, I felt like that, they feel like me, and not look at someone and just see colour of the skin or the gender or like the sexuality at all and just be able to see them as a person because mental health is a massive part of everyone's life and it's one thing everyone has in common and the main campaign wants to have that brought together with 1,000 people and the way it's going in a week I expect this to go even further and so many students are talking right now about how they're just struggling being stuck in a home and with many being stuck in accommodations and can't leave it's just making them lonely, anxious, and with assignments being so intense at the moment, many just feel like they've got nothing else to turn to apart from sitting in the room, doing nothing, because there's only a certain amount of uni work you can do, but many people might not get on with their flats, might not get on with their houses, and it's really, really hard on them. And then when you look at people who have vulnerable parents, they're scared that when they go home at Christmas, they could really hurt their family, and... It just puts more stress on them as students as well because they've got to think about the uni work and then think about their life outside of uni as well and it can be quite stressful for a lot of them. Um, so I've heard so many stories from students and I just feel like mental health needs to be spoke about and that's why I started the campaign and used the hashtag I do because the more people who speak about it, the more people who talk about it, the more awareness is made. And so yeah, that's why I started the campaign and hopefully... On October next year, I'll replace, release a giant collage with thousands of faces and hopefully it will be able to help a lot of students and hopefully be able to help a lot of people out there as well who aren't students. So definitely go and take a look at Alan's uh, project on Instagram um, and see how you can get involved. So we also spoke to a second year student and I think his recollections of online learning can be something that we can all relate to. I know for me especially it is quite daunting just having to turn on your laptop every morning, stare at a screen and you know you are quite isolated, you don't have that to and fro of going outside, seeing friends in the street, getting a coffee. It's all very isolating, turn on your laptop, turn off your laptop, done. Um, so yeah, we've got another audio clip with a second year chemical engineering student to talk about how he's experiencing online learning and dealing with being stuck indoors all day. My mental health has been quite badly affected by the coronavirus, you know, being stuck inside and having to do uni work in the same place all day is very disheartening and um, it does make you feel a little uh, depressed. But 
I still um, have hope that the situation will eventually be resolved. And I know that, you know, we have to all do our part in stopping the spread of the virus. Um, and I understand it's the best they can do at the moment. I do wish I was in lectures and stuff, but I understand it's not an ideal situation. So yeah, I guess with one of that, we're just saying, if you feel yourself struggling at all right now, don't hesitate to try and find ways to um, make yourself feel better. Maybe that's reaching out to a friend. You know, there's so many different social media things. Just reach out, say hi. Um, and also, if you're really struggling and you feel like you have no one to turn to, then there is a service called Nightline, which is an anonymous listening service, which is available to you 24 seven. Um, they gave us a comment, which I'm just gonna read out to you now. So Greater Manchester Nightline would like to share with our fellow students that we offer a confidential anonymous listening service. We run by students for our fellow students and we're here to listen to anything you'd like to talk about. Our phones and instant messaging service will be opening again soon, but our email service is available 24-7, anytime, anywhere. Email nightmail at manchester.nightline.ac.uk if you'd like to talk. It's a great place for a rant or to talk through some thoughts or feelings you may be having during this difficult time. And we really do encourage people to get in touch and not suffer in silence. I think that'd be the message from this. Speak out and, you know, make friends with people, talk about your feelings and let's try and normalise this this situation and say it is awful, but we can get through it. Okay, so our next kind of lighthearted story is about Harry Styles and he has been confirmed as an investor in Manchester's new world-class venue, Co-op Live. So the new 350 million arena was given the green light last month by the council's planning committee and plans to be located next to the Etihad Arena. So the Co-op Live is a sponsorship between member-owned and Manchester-based cooperative and the Oakview Group, an American development and investment company. And this week, Harry Styles announced he'll be investing in the project as he feels he wants to help the growth of Manchester as he is recently regarded as his hometown. Styles said it feels like a full circle, so he explains his first job was delivering papers for the cooperative in the village he grew up in, a village in Manchester's neighbour county, Cheshire. He also described Manchester as an incredible city filled with incredible people and that he couldn't be happier to be involved in this project. The cooperative also has its roots in Manchester. Created in 1844 by the Rochdale pioneers, the co-op is a customer-owned and community-focused business. The project boasts to not only be the largest indoor venue in the UK, hosting international music, sport, charitable and business events, but also plans to be a sustainable and responsible venue. With construction due to begin next month, the project aims to create zero waste, extremely low emissions and a generation of over 1 million a year for community causes. Initial plans confirm will create 3,350 jobs for local community during the three-year construction phase and a further 1,000 after it opens in 2023. The project comes at a time when Manchester is suffering disproportionately from the coronavirus pandemic in both social and economic ways. A city well known for its vibrant live music scene has seen some venues shut for almost eight months now, with little guarantee that they will all be coming back. Styles himself admits it's a strange time to talk about live music because right now it doesn't exist. Will the, Manchester, will the announcement give Manchester the hope it needs right now? And does it provide a light at the end of the tunnel and act as a reminder to those in the entertainment industries that they have not been forgotten? Okay, so we've just had a look at the proposed <laughs> architecture for this arena. Um, we're really confused, because so we've just had to have a quick Google as to whether this arena is actually like a new one or if they're just rebranding a new one. But no, they're building a completely new mm -hmm. arena. They're building, the they're building a huge luminous co-op, basically. It looks, it looks like a massive co-op. That, that, that image looks better, though. A little bit better. We, we, we recommend our listenership to take a look at the proposed <laughs> it's images. It's like a big... 
black <laughs> rectangle with like some kind of fluorescent light. Yeah, it's just gonna be an eyesore. I think. Yeah, yeah that's I think a shame. That, that that looks like I think from above, like bird's eye view, it looks all right. Yeah, but, but who's gonna? The big co-op will enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, the, the birds will enjoy like, it. Imagine like grandma's driving that thing. It's a big co-op. Like, oh no! <laughs> but no, I, I'm I'm confused as to why Manchester, which. I mean, I'm from Birmingham, but I'm gonna say Manchester's probably like the second city. I'm so sorry to everyone from Birmingham. Oh, it is committed blasphemy <laughs> there. But um, why do why does Manchester need a third kind of music venue and maybe not somewhere else which could do with like economic boost? I'm just gonna I put that out there. The, the the thing is, in non-COVID times, a music venue that can be used for like multi multi-purpose in terms of like cultural events would generate a lot of money yeah. in terms of ticket sales and in terms of kind of bringing people to the city so like extra revenue from tourism but and I stuff. just feel like they've already got that with the Etihad which I feel it's like right Harry next to you know? kind of summed it up yeah but that's, 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 that's a football stadium this is like a but, cultural yeah, kind of a performance yeah. art this will stadium. be more catered to um to concerts and right. music events. And I think Jesse was saying it's like a green building as well well they're just I think the community are dedicated to donating a lot more money that says here it will not only enthrall audiences but every time people watch a live act they'll be doing good in local communities across the UK and that right. is the CEO of the co-op saying that mm. and they have done good it's just whether that's you know I mean, how much proportion of that is co- going co-op in. Co-op are quite an ethical mm. uh, organisation in terms of like the whole co- cooperative system Yeah they're saying one million a year we just treat by the co-ops mm. after this building but it, yeah it is That's why it's quite strange. expensive as a shop as well because mm. you're, you're paying into kind of like their charitable um like yeah. dealings and organisations. I wonder if the shops inside of it are all going to be mostly co-ops. <laughs> They'll have like co-op food outlets. directors, co-op food, co-op. <laughs> it's just like the only food you can get there is a co-op just meal deal. Co-op. <laughs> but no, I, I, I do... It could have been a bit more inventive than just co-op lines. <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know about that it's whole branding thing. thing. Yeah, I know that whole branding thing is co-op and whatever service, but come on, co-op life, like... <laughs> It's not best. <laughs> yeah. I wonder why Harry Styles decided to get involved with this. Yeah. Like, has well, he got a, a page a brand deal else. with the co-op again? <laughs> <laughs> Stop all in branded gear. Like. Yeah, it's like, he's like, posting on Instagram, like, hey, I like to get my groceries from the co-op every week. Next time for him singing. Co-op. <laughs> but it's a nice, uh, nice little... Manchester stories. Yeah, to, yeah. Um, show. Once we're able to go and see live music, you know, might be become our new favourite kind of grassroots venue for small indie bands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> get some biggest reviews. venue possibly ever. But yeah, the grassroots venue. Can't wait to warehouse project to come up live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a massive room like... with a sandwich in your hand. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you goes out to Jessica Colnane for her help and research, and to Johnny Hunt for producing the show. That's it for now, you're in focus.